can be seated. You can open your Bible uh, to Psalm 77. That's where we're going to be this morning here in just a couple minutes. I um, wanted to share a couple things, though, as you turn to Psalm 77, uh, just to get you acclimated to Christmas season. We're starting Advent today, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but if you're here in the room, which we're recording this, I think, digitally, but if you're here in the room, you certainly saw this, that we uh, have trees at the back of the auditorium, a handful of Christmas trees, small ones back there that have paper ornaments on them. Those are going to be up all throughout the month of December also, uh, up till Christmas time, and those are what we call our giving trees. Uh, we've had those the last several years. Like the one in the middle I draw your attention to is for Cardinal Services. It's actually a card that has gifts you could buy for one of their clients, one of the people that they service uh, through their work, uh, that it has suggestions of things you could buy, and you can be what they call a Cardinal Elf. That's the most time-sensitive one because you have to turn that back in by next Sunday, uh, the gift, if you want to participate in that. So I would love to see that tree empty this morning. That would make my heart happy uh, by the end of the morning to see those haven't been taken. Uh, but there's also other opportunities. And one I wanted to know because it's unique, because most of them are for local ministries uh, to give to. One that's unique that if you'd like to give to, and I'm going to use an alias for them, even though they're in the room, uh, is we're going to call this family down over here, uh, Cal and Mallory South, uh, Lord willing, as funding would come in and they'd be allowed to in 2021, hopefully early in 2021, we're going to commission them as a church and send them out to do church planning work in Southeast Asia and a nation that uh, is hard to reach and there's no real church presence yet. Uh, but to, in order to go, it takes, it takes a lot of outgoing costs for plane tickets and getting acclimated into a new country. And so we'd love to help them as a fam as a church family, part of their church family, to help donate towards their outgoing costs. And so there's one tree right back there if you want to know their real names, if you don't know them, it's on the paper back there. Uh, you can see that or you can just talk to them. But I'd love if we could bless them this Christmas season to help them with their outgoing costs to go to that nation to further our mission as a church to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ. And so I would encourage you to check those out uh, this month. They start this Sunday. They'll go all the way up till Christmas time. But I would encourage you to be generous. We try to encourage that to be above and beyond, if possible, what you contribute to our normal general fund as a church. We are a bit behind budget, I would note, right now as a church family. We always have that on the back of your program. Uh, the, your normal giving, uh, go, whether it's online or in the boxes at the back, goes to help support missionaries, goes to support our staff, support our local ministry. So I would encourage you to be generous even to our common, more typical fund as well uh, this Christmas. But I trust that you found Psalm 77 by now. We're going to read this uh, in chunks this morning. I want to tell you why we picked this psalm uh, to start with as we start the season of Advent. Advent is a time every year. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, many churches throughout the world and throughout time have uh, practiced this time called Advent. And it's really to help us remember that God's people are supposed to be and always have been really marked by waiting. Uh, that we are a people who are called to wait, called by God to wait. And so before Jesus came, when we read texts like the Old Testament, like the one we're going to look at, the people of God back then were waiting for the, the Messiah to come the first time, waiting for him to enter into our world, for him to, to make himself known, to rescue God's people. They had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And there was anticipation that built up to his coming the first time. Us now, everyone who lives past the time of Jesus, who live after him, we anticipate and what we wait for is his return to earth. We anticipate his coming again to make all things right, to, to judge the world and to set up his kingdom. And so Advent is a time for us to remember that initial waiting of God's people to where Jesus was born. That's why it precedes Christmas. 
but it's also to help us anticipate and wait for the second coming of Jesus. And waiting can be hard sometimes. Waiting can sometimes be easy, right, in life. Sometimes if we like the surroundings, we like the situation we're in, we like our company, we like the friends we have, we like the station of life we're in, waiting can be easy. We're like, hey, wait as long as you want. I'm happy here. But there's other times when we're waiting for something and the situation we're in right now is dark and bleak and unfortunate and sad where we get tired of waiting. Waiting becomes difficult. We, we, we want it to hurry up and happen. We want to just get uh, to where we are going. And when that happens, I, I thought of it this week, and this will lead into our text this morning. I was thinking of it this week kind of like this. That if you imagine as the people of God, we are kind of on a journey through the mountains. That's the picture and whatnot. We're on a journey through the mountains to go eventually towards the heavenly city of God. That's where we will ultimately end up. That's what we have our eyes on. That's what we're longing for and moving towards as the people of God down this journey of life. And a lot of times in life, things seem pleasant and smooth and we have a clear picture of it and we feel like things are progressing in, in ways that we like and that, that we approve of ourselves from our vantage point. But there are times, and many people have gone through this this year or even in recent weeks, recent months, where it's not as clear of a picture. It's not as pleasant of a walk. Instead of clear skies, fog starts to set in. Like thick fog, like you can't see hardly in front of you type of fog. And you can't see as clearly that city any longer. You can't hardly even see where to take your next step or where the next turns are. And then there's darkness that can set in. And there's, there's confusion and we can start to feel disoriented in our journey because the, the mile markers we used to look for and the signposts we used to look for we don't see anymore. Uh, we certainly don't see the city off in the distance anymore. The map maybe that we have in our pocket doesn't feel trustworthy anymore because we have no reference point. What do we do in situations like that where we're in life and it feels dark and cloudy and foggy and we're, we don't want to stay in this state that we're in and we can't really see where we're going. We, we have a hard time looking to the future. What do we do in those circumstances? Or we're called to wait and we're called to really keep moving but we don't know where to go. And we feel confused, we feel perplexed. Psalm 77 is a text that speaks just to that situation. As much as any other text in the Bible, Psalm 77 speaks into that situation that many of us find ourselves in right now. Where we feel disoriented, where we feel uh, uh, darkness or cloudiness, fogginess around us, but it calls us forward to keep trusting God, to keep moving forward in time. And so we're gonna read this psalm together. It's a song book, psalms are, uh, for the kids that are in the room. Psalms are just lyrics of songs that God's people used to sing. Some still do sing, even today. We can't hear the notes of what they sang, but we can read the words of what they sang. And this one is written by a guy named Asaph, which is an awesome name. Uh, you can see that in the title there, a psalm of Asaph. So he was going through a period of fogginess and confusion in his life as he's making his way forward and trusting God. And we're going to read this in chunks. You notice the word Selah three times in the psalm. It's kind of over on the right-hand side probably in your copy of the Bible. We're going to, whenever we see one of those, we're going to hit pause in our reading, talk for a couple minutes, then read it again until we get to the next one. Uh, that's somewhat what those were intended to do. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read the first three verses of this man Asaph, his song uh, that he recorded that I think the Lord will use to help give us guidance when we feel that fog and confusion in life. So follow along with me the first three verses of this psalm of Asaph, Psalm 77. He began this way. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble... 
When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And then there's that Selah. So he is starting out here, and I'm going to call this uh, heading, uh, the first three verses here, when the present, like present tense, brings confusion. When the present brings confusion. And what I mean by that is this. So Asaph is starting out here. We don't know exactly what's going on in his life. We don't, we're not given like all the details and play-by-play of what's going on in his life. But there's something happening that he calls in verse 2. He, did you hear he calls it the day of my trouble? There's something, he calls it my trouble, something very personal going on in his life. We don't know what it is. We don't know what's ailing him or if it's relational things or he's uh, downcast and depressed or if there's physical struggle that he's going through, rejection from others. We don't know, but he calls it the day of my trouble. And one thing I appreciate about Psalms, many of them at least, is that they, uh, they aren't so specific about the person who, in the details that are included and written by the person, they aren't so specific that we can't use the words ourselves. They're general enough that we can actually read what they say and we can relate to it. They can even become our own words because we all have our day of trouble, don't we? We all have the moments or the seasons of life where we experience trouble. And what Asaph, he tells us what he starts to do. Whenever this is happening in his life, he tells us what he does, like what the action steps he takes, right? Like verse 1, he says a couple times, I cry aloud to God. I don't know how many of you pray just in the privacy of your head or in quiet, but he is certainly not doing that here. He's saying, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God I cry, and he will hear me. So he's crying out to God. Verse 2 says that he seeks the Lord. So in his day of trouble, he says, I'm seeking the Lord. I'm not just like just content to stay uh, where I am and to just stay confused and, and, and uh, without aim. He says he seeks after God. And he even uses this analogy in verse 2 or this metaphor of like him reaching out to God. Did you see that? He says, my, uh, in, not, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. It means like, it's not just like he tried to grab one time at God, but he's like, he's reaching out, trying to grasp God, trying to figure out what is going on. Like, where are you at? Like, what are you doing? Why are you allowing these things in my life? He's, he's stretching out his hand to God. But he says at the end of verse 2, that comfort isn't coming. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. I don't think what he means when he says that is that, hey, here's God like offering me comfort and I'm just like rejecting it. Oh, I don't want that. He definitely wants comfort, but it's, it's not happening. It, it's not coming to fruition. It, it's not coming in his heart and in his soul uh, the way that he desires for it to come. But he, I would note for you, he does not give up. He doesn't just stop pursuing God. He doesn't stop seeking answers and stop seeking guidance. He says in verse 3 that he remembers God and he meditates upon God. He's giving thought and attention to God, even though when he does, he moans and he says that his spirit faints. You get the vibe at the beginning of this psalm, though we don't know detail, that, that Asaph is deeply confused by whatever's going on in his life. In this day of trouble, he is very confused. He, he's disoriented by what God is allowing or maybe things that God is not allowing in his life. He is deeply perplexed, deeply confused by this. Like, what is going on? Like, I want comfort, I can't get it. I'm trying to grasp you, but I can't reach you. And I want us, before we move on in the rest of this psalm, to know 
that that experience as a person of God, as a Christian, is not a foreign one. It's not a strange one. Like, you read accounts like this from Psalm 77, and they're littered throughout the rest of the Psalms, where God's people say similar things to this. Where it's not just all pleasant and rosy and easy and simple. There's times where we feel very, very confused by what God is doing in our life. By why he's letting these things happen. Why he's not fixing my problems. Why did this person leave me? Why is this person suffering? Why do I have this hardship that has come to me? Why are you doing these things? There, it's, it's confusing to us. But there are times you see in scripture where God for his own purposes that we don't always understand. He lets us feel as if his presence is removed from us. He lets us feel as if his love has been removed from us. His favor has been removed from us. He lets us feel that. He lets us sense that. And I know just in looking around that many of you, you have lived through times like that. Like when he talks about his day of trouble, you're like, I can tell you when that was for me. Like my day of trouble that I lived through. Some of you, I know, are living through that right now. Like there, are, there is, you would say today is a day of trouble for you. That you feel very confused by what God is doing in your life, by what he's allowing or not allowing in your life. And I want to encourage you as we move on in this psalm to not rush by the fact that Asaph continually kept seeking after God. He didn't interpret like the difficulty that came to him and the hardship that came to him as a reason to, to stiff-arm God and to distance himself from God, but as a, as a reason to keep pursuing and say, I am so confused by you, but I want to know you. I want to understand what you're doing. And he pursues God. He seeks after him. There are some answers in life that come quickly. There's some things, problems in life that God fixes quickly for us, but not all of them are. Uh, there are often times where we sit in grief and confusion in our present circumstances that God doesn't just fix. That God doesn't just wave a magic wand and resolve for us. And we ought to not be in a rush to get through grief, to get through confusion. And we ought to not rush fellow Christians through it either. To think when they're going through a day of trouble that, well, you just need to suck it up and get through this. Uh, God often works slowly. Okay? There, we can't just, there's many things in our world we can like Google and ask and get an answer to like that or watch a YouTube video, how do I do such and such. You can't do that with this agony of the soul, with, with this grief and confusion that you feel in life. So when the present brings confusion, that's how I would summarize the first three verses. But what, I, what you're going to see as we read this next section, verses 4 to 9, is what becomes harder for Asaph and what becomes harder for us is when we start to imagine that what I'm feeling right now in the present is never going to change. It's actually going to continue out into the future and maybe forever. And we start to anticipate that, the future, that that can really start to rack our minds and souls. And you see Asaph's mind going here in verses 4 through 9. So follow along with me as he continues this song that he wrote. Remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And we're going to pause there with that Selah. 
So the present had been bringing him confusion, but what I'd call this heading is, and this is going to form a sentence slowly as with these headings, I'm going to call this section, and the future raises concern. And the future raises concern. So when the present brings confusion and the future raises concern, that's what is happening in Asaph's mind here. He's looking ahead to the future and it's raising concern in his mind and heart. And so look at what he says is going on in his, uh, in his experience here. In verse 4, he's basically saying that in his trouble he's feeling sleepless and that he's feeling speechless. He's feeling sleepless and speechless. Like when he says that in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open, I don't think he literally means like God is like holding his eyes like this somehow. It's a poetic way of saying I can't sleep. Like I'm thinking about this stuff so much. I have so much grief in my heart, so much confusion. I can't even put my head down on a pillow or whatever they had back then and rest at night. I can't even do that. And he says that he, he's so troubled he can't speak. There's, there's certain distresses that we feel in life where we're sometimes quick to talk to other people about it. Like, man, I'm going through a hard time. Like, can I just talk with you for a little bit? But when there's a certain, like, gravity of pain and suffering in our life, sometimes we're like, I don't want to talk to anybody about this. Like, I just want to sit in it. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what to tell people. And we become speechless, sometimes towards God and definitely towards other people. And we see for a moment, though, in verses 5 and 6, Asaph briefly, instead of looking to the future, glances back into the past of his life. Did you notice that? Uh, it's just like a, a quick thing in verses 5 and 6. But he says that he considers the days of old, the years long ago. And then he references some things personally in his life. He says, let me remember my song in the night. And so what he is saying there is that he's remembering some time in his life, we don't know when it was, if it had been fairly recently, or it sounds like it was long ago, where he, instead of moaning in the night and being sleepless in the night because he's so agonizing, over, so he was singing in the night. His heart was so glad with whatever had been going on in his life that he just was staying awake so happy and thankful and, and joyful in the Lord. And he's remembering that time. He's, he's remembering the days of singing instead of the days of moaning. But in this section, you see that that kind of quickly gets brushed aside. And then in verses 7, 8, and 9, you see his mind is given way more attention and way more gravity to the future. Where he starts to ask these huge questions like, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Questions like that. He, he's thinking ahead to the future, Right? And what he's doing, it, it's that he is imagining that his present circumstances, the things he feels about what's going on in his life right then, he's imagining that's going to become permanent. Like, he, he doesn't even think that, well, this is temporary, it'll, it'll get better, things will resolve. He's imagining the present is going to become the permanent. And what I feel right now about God is what's going to be true in the future about God as well. And he's worried, he's concerned that that may be the case and one thing I would say I appreciate about Asaph here, even in these questions that he's asking, verses 7, 8, and 9, is note that Asaph is not asking for the circumstances of his life to get resolved. That's not what he's concerned about, right? Whatever it was that's bothering him, he's not saying, God, like, are you going to fix this? Are you going to uh, like heal this where there's brokenness? Are you going to mend this where there's been a tear? Like what he is concerned about and what is gripping his heart as he looks to the future is how God is going to relate to him. 
Did you notice what, he, what he's longing for? He's longing for uh, God's favor, for God's love, verse 8, for God's promises, verse uh, 8, for God, to, his graciousness, verse 9, for his compassion. Those are the things that Asaph wants to know are going to be true in the future, that he can have in the future. But he's nervous he's not going to receive them. He, he, because he's not feeling it in the present, he thinks that's what's going to be in the future. And as human beings, this is how we think, isn't it? If you're anything like me, this is how we think. We look at what's going on in the present, like what's happening right now, and we project that onto the future. We think the current realities are going to be the present realities, or for the future realities. If things are pleasant and simple and easy, I anticipate that's going to be what comes in the future. If things are difficult and dark and hard, I anticipate that's what's going to be the future as well. And so as human beings, we project the present onto the future. And when we start to do that with, when it comes to the favor of God and the love of God, the nearness of God, the kindness of God, and we start to question those things in the present and doubt those things in the present, and then we press that forward into time, like through the rest of my life, and then certainly into eternity, it starts to rack our minds and hearts and souls. We start to think, is this going to be true forever? Like this distance I feel from him, this displeasure I feel from him, like is this going to be just constant? Is this going to be even into eternity? And those are not like questions. I was thinking about how as young kids and often as grown-ups too, we sometimes use exaggerated language. There's definitely some of that going on here in verses 7, 8, and 9 where it talks about like, forever and always, uh, things like that. Like kids, sometimes we often will say things like, this is taking forever, something like that, when it's really not taking forever, it's just taking a long time. Or we think like, you never listen to me, something like that, like when they actually do listen to you. you just uh, Like we use exaggerated language sometimes, and Asaph, it seems like is doing that maybe on purpose, or maybe it's just the expression of his heart when he's even talking to God. We do that when we're talking about God and to God sometimes, where we think, man, is, are you going to treat me like this forever? Is this always going to be how you relate to me? Like, are you ever going to listen to me again? And these, but these are huge, huge, huge questions. Verses 7, 8, and 9. They are massive questions. Like questions I would challenge you to think, is there any weightier question that you could ask? About is God going to treat you with kindness and compassion? The question, that's why Asaph says he makes a diligent search at the end of verse 6 as he asks those questions. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about these very questions in verses 7, 8, and 9 that Asaph is asking, he said this. He said, the questions are suggested by fear, but they are also the cure for fear. It's a blessed thing to have grace enough to look such questions in the face for their answer is self-evident and eminently fitted to cheer the heart. And what he was saying and what Asaph knew to be true is that when those questions rise up in your heart and you're concerned about the future as you look to it and is God going to be favorable to me and kind toward me and compassionate to me in the future, you don't just shrink back from those questions. Like you lean into them. You try to find answers to them because in asking them, even though it could lead you to, to agonize and to feel confused, asking those questions is actually what's going to get you towards a state of peace and comfort and encouragement. 
Because you have to lean into those questions, find the answer to those questions. And the, the cure for fear comes in answering those questions. And we're going to see that Asaph in this next section, verses 10 to 15, we're going to see that his clarity, his, his calmness of soul and heart only starts to come when instead of looking at his present circumstances and instead of looking into the future circumstances of his life is when he starts to look to the past. When he starts to look backward in time, that's when fear starts to dissolve in his heart. So follow along with me as he turns his attention back to the past of all places, verses 10 through 15. He said this, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So here we see Asaph turn his attention back to the past. And I'm, I'm going to call this section, uh, the final phrase in this sentence, the past provides clarity. So when the present brings confusion and when the future raises concerns, the past provides clarity. Verse 10 is a turning point in the psalm, in the song. Uh, it, he says in it, he says, I'm going to appeal to something to answer these questions I just asked. And these questions that are, are just deep in my heart. I'm going to appeal to something. And what I'm going to appeal to to answer, he says, is the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to look back at his track record, the things that he's done in years gone by. And he, he says, it's not even though the promises of God are weighty and wonderful. What he says he's going to look at specifically isn't just the promises that God made in the past. But verse 11 and 12 both talk about how he's going to look at the deeds of God. The things God has actually done in the past. The works he actually visibly, unquestionably did in the past. And I would note for you, he, he says in verse 11, I'll remember your wonders of old. But then in verse 12, we know it's not just like this quick remembering, it's like a deep thinking on the things that God has done in the past. He says, I'll ponder all your work and I'll meditate on your mighty deeds. So he's not just trying to create some quick list of, oh yeah, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this in the past. But he's actually setting his mind to think, God did that. Like what does that tell us about God, that God did that like he's letting it stew in his mind and heart and I was trying to think of a way to, to explain the difference here and I was thinking of the difference between looking through a physical photo album and looking through a digital photo album like on digital photo albums a lot of times if it's on a phone or something we'll just kind of slide through it real fast or swipe to the side till we find like a picture that kind of catches our eye we'll look at it a second then we'll go to the next one we don't like linger on them very long typically with physical photo albums, it's quite the opposite, right? It's usually an event, almost like you sit down with this thing, you physically get it out, and you look at the picture, and then a bunch of memories flood your mind, and you talk to the person maybe who's sitting next to you, like, hey, do you remember such and such, like what happened that holiday, or what they said, or remember how so-and-so came through for us, or like you remember a lot more, and that's what Asaph is doing with the past works of God. He's saying, I'm meditating on them. I'm thinking about the things that God has done in the past. I'm not just running them through my mind real quick. 
And he says in verse 13 and 14 that as he's doing that, he remembers that God is holy, that God is great, and that God is mighty. That's a phrase that he uses, that God is mighty. Just think of the list of things that Asaph could have looked back on. This God, he's thinking about his deeds and his works, is the God who spoke the universe into existence. How's that something to look back on? To know what this God is like. This God who flooded the earth but spared his people. This God who had done miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And Asaph could look back on all those things. But the greatest thing that he looked back on in verse 15 was how God by his arm, he says, redeemed his people. That was the thing that impressed him the most. That was where his mind set the most. It was not just these impressive, miraculous things God could do, but how he could redeem his people, how he could rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. God wasn't just and is not just this strong God and this holy God, but God is a redeeming God, like one who intervenes in history, not just to show off, but to rescue his people. And that's what Asaph is starting to remember here and I, I, I want us to follow his example because I would say to you that it is looking back at the past actions of God that will give you a crystal clear picture of what he's like. You can misunderstand the present circumstances that you're in and you can misforecast and guess what's coming in the future and what may happen then. But one thing that you will not get wrong is looking back at the past and things God has already done right? Like there, there's no questioning those things. There's no wondering. That's why we say the phrase hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like we can't see around us clearly in the future clearly, but when we look back, no matter how bad our vision is, we can see clearly the things that God has done. And God's track record is impeccable. We, we live this way, don't we, where we evaluate human beings, fellow humans, and what we expect of them and how they're going to act in the future. We base it off of how they've acted in the past, right? Like when somebody in the past, and God has worked remarkably in the past. He has done immense things to show his holiness and his mightiness and his love for his people. Charles Spurgeon also uh, said of this psalm, he said that memory is a fit handmaid for faith. That, that as we look back with memory on what God's done in the past, it builds up our faith, it serves our faith in the present. And I was trying to think of an illustration uh, to explain this, and I was sitting with my kids actually in our car yesterday morning. We were about to come out to help uh, help. I was watching them build this pavilion yesterday, uh, but we were going to come watch, and uh, I am not always like the, I'm a lazy dad when it comes to like stuff like scraping off the car and whatnot. So we got up early and there was like frost on the windshield of our van and whatnot. And I was too lazy to go out and like scrape it in advance or like get it started. We have a garage, but we don't always use it. I had been outside, had frost on the windows and I'd made sure they had their coats on and I'm just like, I'm going to just get them in the van, turn the, the van on hit all the defrost on, all the windows, and then we'll just sit here for a couple minutes so I can see where I'm going. And we're sitting there, and then I just smiled because I don't know how your vehicles are, but every vehicle I've ever driven when I've had frost out on the windows and just blast all that stuff on, the first window that becomes clear in any vehicle that I've ever had is the back window. 
right? Because it has those wires through it like that are heated and it warms up quickly. And bef well before I could see out any of the sides or out the front, I could see in the back uh, to know at least be able how to back up. And I just, I just smile because I'm like, man, that's a good metaphor uh, that when we look to the sides and the present circumstances around us, we're not always able to see rightly what's going on. And when we look ahead in time, we, sometimes it's a mist and a fog to us. But the first thing and the clearest thing that we can see is what's behind us in time. What has already happened in life. God has already proven himself. And it is important for us to look back at what God's done in the past because he is the God that we pray to in the present. And he is the God that will lead us into the future. And we can know what he's like. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to fear. We can know what he's like because of what he's already done. This psalm, the last five verses, end by Asaph focusing his attention on one event in particular, one past action of God in particular, and it's the exodus. And I want to read for you how he describes that exodus of the God's people from Egypt. He's going to use these just like literally flashy terms and whatnot to describe how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt back in the times of Moses. This is how he uh, phrases it and when he turns his attention to it. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the, whole, uh, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So Asaph turns his attention to one past action in particular. It's the Exodus. Uh, you're probably familiar with that story. I won't uh, belabor details if you don't. But he describes it in very vivid terms. He talks about the waters of the, the Red Sea being almost afraid of God and trembling at God and parting when God tells them to. He talks about like lightning uh, being uh, like flashes from God. Uh, he, he talks about even God uh, making his path through the waters but his footprints being unseen. It's a way of saying like, Nobody physically saw you there, but you were there. Like, you were the one doing all of it. You were the one from start to finish in control of saving God's people back then. There was no doubt about it. And it is not, this is not remotely the only time a person in the Old Testament looks back to the Exodus as a sign of God's power and his saving work. That happens over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, where there's individuals or there's groups of people who, as they look back to the past, the Exodus is their go-to place. Say, that's where we saw God work. Like he showed, if no other place, he showed there his miraculous power and his willingness uh, and commitment to save us as his people. Asaph is looking back at the proven record of God. But I, that last sentence seems kind of strange, though, to me. When I read it this week, it was just like scratching my head a bit. Like it seems so anticlimactic. Like all this, like flashing of lights and thunder, and God walking through the sea, and He's like, "And you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." Like when you know who these guys were, there was good things they did, but they were far from impressive on the whole. But what Asaph is saying is that God was leading His people like a shepherd. Right? Like a flock, he was leading them. But he was doing it by the hand of human beings. By these two men in particular, right? By Moses and Aaron. 
And what it jogged in my memory is that Asaph would have known, and everybody reading this and singing this with him would have known, that God was still someday going to send another human to come who was going to shepherd the people of God and who was going to rescue the people of God. Somebody that was going to be better than Moses and better than Aaron, somebody who was going to supersede all of them and the things that they had rescued God's people from, and that is the person of Jesus. They, they knew that this Messiah was going to come. They were waiting for him to come, but they knew he was going to come, and he did. God the Son became a human being, he entered the womb of a woman and was born in that stable outside Bethlehem around 2,000 years ago. And he came into our world to redeem us, to rescue us, to save us from our sin, to save us from Satan, to save us from death. And ultimately, he came to bring us back to God. So an exodus far more impressive than the one Asaph was bragging on about here, about God. We see that he suffered, the, Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross in our place. And he was laid in the tomb. He, he suffered so that we could be forgiven. And the most miraculous thing God has ever done was not the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. It was the raising of a dead man to life, never to die again. And the person of Jesus. And we can look back to that. It was impressive to these people to be able to look back at the, the parted waters. We get to look at an empty grave. We get to look at an occupied throne of heaven where Jesus is right now. We can look that we can look back to in the past. You notice those say laws is the last thing. They say laws that were in this passage. Uh, there's three of them there. We don't know exactly what those were put in Psalms for. But they appear in many of the Psalms. Uh, as best as we can tell, they were these, uh, these inserts in the song where when they were actually playing and singing these songs where they would pause where they would reflect back on what they just sang, reflect back on what they just said in their song instead of just rushing on to the next thing. And I would encourage us to let that be a metaphor in our lives, to not be in such a hurry to look to the future, to look ahead, to rush to the next thing, that we're not willing to pause and look back on what's already been said, to look back on what's already been done, because that's where we're going to find clarity. We'll be confused about the present, and we may be nervous about the future, but when we look to the past and the work of Jesus, we can have courage, we can have confidence of how God's going to act now and in the future. So God is leading us as a flock. And God is leading us by the hand not of Moses and Aaron, but by the hand of Jesus. I want to pray for us. I want to invite